unpublished or, excuse me, precedential opinion. Prosecutors then went back to the Court of Appeals asking for a stay in the trial. We have filed with the Court of Appeals a motion to stay the trial pending resolution of jurisdiction with the Court of Appeals and in the appeal. The Court of Appeals says they are reviewing but have not yet given a time frame for when their ruling will come down. The trial judge says he will proceed with jury selection unless a higher court tells him to stop. With us for legal analysis is criminal defense attorney Julie Rendleman along with Terry Austin and Anjanette Levy. Julie, picking the right jury is the obvious goal during selection. What kind of juror, though, do you think the prosecution is looking for? So, look, I would love to say they're looking for a fair and impartial jury, um, but that's not usually what they're looking for. They're looking for someone they believe is going to, at the end of the day, find the defendant guilty. Um, and so that means someone who is potentially more supportive um, um, or more anti-police, um, I'm sorry, um, anti-police than, um, you know, some of the other jurors. Um, keep in mind when a defense attorney and prosecution are deciding who the juror is going to be, neither side really wins. It's really a, bat a battle of one person getting rid of the other one person, one person getting rid of another, and then there's really a compromise that comes in as to who the final juror is. Yeah, defense attorneys often say you never really get who you love, just kind of who you can like or tolerate. Terry, Two jurors have been selected, the first being a white male chemist who has not seen the video but has been to the mural. How do you see the selection process going? Brian, if I had to characterize this process, it would be slow and methodical. Every juror is being questioned individually, and the judge is asking questions first, and then he's handing it off to defense, and defense is asking the same question. The first question he's asking everyone is, if you had to describe yourself to me when we just met, how would you describe yourself? And then, of course, he gets into the details about the questionnaire. But I think it's interesting that the two people they've selected so far have been individuals who have said they can keep an open mind. And I think Anjanette's point about the female who was chosen saying awesome she was very interesting she was very excited she's i think a chatty caddy and i think she will be very interesting on the jury exactly now Anjanette, are you able to see the jurors or the court staff what's the general mood in the courthouse yeah, we are being kept out of the courthouse. We're watching a live feed of the proceedings, and so we can't really see the jurors coming in and out. We are being kept on the other side of the courthouse. Obviously, um, some of these jurors have expressed concern about their safety. They don't want their names getting out, and we don't show jurors anyway. It's just a, a big no-no in court. You don't do that. So uh, the mood here I would describe, I think it's a little tense. It's not as tense today. There weren't any protesters at the courthouse, but I think it's it's tense. It's, it's a serious Serious, serious situation and a big, big uh, criminal case. So I, I think there's reason for a little bit of tension and concern about security given what happened last summer. Thank you, everyone, for your contribution. Still ahead on Law and Crime Daily, why Lori Vallow Daybell is filing a motion in court to be called by her married name. But first, what will and won't the jury know about the George Floyd case once they've seen it? We break down all the behind-the-scenes motions next. potential jurors are brought into the courtroom for the Derek Chauvin's trial, both sides go over pre-trial motions as ground rules for when testimony begins. Here are some of the rulings. The off-duty Minneapolis firefighter who was present when George Floyd died can talk about what she observed, but not what she believes could have saved him. 
Prosecutors plan to call the Minneapolis police chief, who can say Derek Chauvin employment dates, but not the reasoning for his firing. The defense plans to call use of force experts who are expected to say that Chauvin acted within his training guidelines. Dr. Michael Bodden, who was hired by George Floyd's family to perform an independent autopsy, will not be called to testify. The cause of death, in my opinion, is asphyxia due to compression of the neck, which can uh, interfere with blood flow and oxygen going to the brain. Those findings differ from Hennepin County Medical Examiner Dr. Andrew Baker, who ruled Floyd's death was a homicide caused by a cardiopulmonary arrest while being restrained by law enforcement. Dr. Baker is expected to testify. And in another motion, the defense tried to get in evidence from George Floyd's 2019 arrest. And Jeanette Levy is live in Minneapolis to explain why the defense says it's relevant to the ongoing trial. Yeah, Brian, the defense is claiming that this is basically an MO, a modus operandi for George Floyd, that when he encounters police, that he swallows drugs so that they won't be able to find them. During the defense investigation of this case, Eric Nelson, the defense attorney for Eric, uh, Derek Chauvin, said that defense investigators noticed a white powder in the back of Chauvin's police cruiser. That's Squad 320. You'll hear a lot about that throughout the trial. Nelson said those drugs were tested by the state and were found to contain fentanyl and methamphetamine and that the drugs belonged to George Floyd. In reviewing photographs of Squad 320, there appeared to be white substances throughout the back seat of the squad car. Uh, so myself and some of the other defendants' attorneys and our investigators went to inspect Squad 320. Uh, it was very apparent that what was in Squad 320 was controlled substances. The state of Minnesota um, then subsequently uh, had those substances taken out of the squad car and tested. Um, they are, in fact, methamphetamine and fentanyl, and they contain the DNA of George Floyd. Um, so they are chewed, partially chewed up uh, pills. Now, Judge Cahill said that he was not convinced by Eric Nelson's arguments. He questioned how this could be rele relevant since Derek Chauvin may not have even known about that 2019 arrest or the fact that George Floyd had swallowed drugs in the past. Prosecutors say actually during that 2019 arrest that George Floyd was given medical treatment and he was not restrained. Judge Cahill told Eric Nelson to submit something in writing so he could reconsider this request. Uh, that request had been denied earlier in the case. Brian? Thanks, Angela. Back to analyze the jury selection and the trial of the death of George Floyd. Uh, Terry, the defense is clearly focused on the fentanyl in George Floyd's car, body, and the police car. How do you see that being argued in court? Look, I think that that is one of their bigger arguments. They only have a few arguments. One is that, you know, he died because of the fentanyl. One is that they were acting properly because they were, you know, doing reasonable force. And the other is that he was resisting arrest. I think the whole problem here, however, with the fentanyl is that they're going to make George Floyd look like he is a victim here. And I think it's not going to go over well because basically they're victim blaming. And had it not been or the knee on his neck, he would not have died. So I don't think that that strategy is necessarily going to be successful. 
Now, Julie, I'm curious about what you think of this theme I saw the defense kind of throwing out there, that the jury should measure both sides equally. To me, that sounds like they're not recognizing the prosecution has a burden here and that it's shared. What do you think? Yeah, so, you know, anytime as a defense attorney, I think one of the big strategies we always assume they're going to make is, it is not my burden. I can literally sit here, we've often heard them say, I can sit here and sleep the whole time, and still the prosecutor must prove this case beyond a reasonable doubt. And so a defense attorney has to be very careful when they're questioning the jury, when they are presenting their evidence or, or even cross-examining individuals, that they make it very clear to the jury that they have absolutely no burden whatsoever, and it's all in the prosecutor. With that said, keep in mind one of the most important things when you're picking a jury is for a jury to, to, to in a sense, I hate to say this, like you, feel like you can relate to them. And he may view that approach as a way for him to get the juror to embrace him, to get the jurors to believe that he's being fair and they want to hear what he has to say. And at the end of the day, maybe they'll go along with what he's saying versus what the prosecution is saying. We'll see if they like him enough based on that. And Jeanette, day one was a false start to jury selection. Do you get the sense the trial is finally off to a running start? I mean, uh, all day long, they've been questioning potential jurors. So we have two jurors seated. Um, day two, you know, it has been full of questioning of jurors, just some motions at the beginning of the day. So it is up and running until the Court of Appeals steps in and tells Judge Cahill to stop. We don't know if that will happen. So we're just waiting to see. Of course, we've got two selected. We're waiting for 10 more jurors and, of course, four alternates. So quite some way to go. But first day of jury selection seems to be productive. Thank you. Coming up on Law and Crime Daily, with all eyes on Derek Chauvin's murder trial, how will this affect George Floyd's civil case? Our expert analysis coming up. Plus, it's Lori Vallow Daybell, the demands Lori Vallow was making in court, and the ruling that was made after a breakout session with the prosecutor. You don't want to miss. so-called doomsday cult couple ended with little information being revealed. Terry Austin is here to explain what the secretive meeting could mean. Brian, it was an odd virtual hearing. Attorneys for the couple were scheduled to talk about their latest motions, but they went into a breakout session with the prosecution, and when they came out, the judge announced the hearing was vacated. Lori Vallow and her husband, Chad Daypel, are charged with concealing and destroying evidence while Vallow's children were reported missing. Authorities discovered the bodies of J.J. and Tylee Ryan buried in shallow graves on Daybell's property. The couple wed in Hawaii in November 2019. Lori Vallow Daybell is now insisting she be called by her married name. The defense wants to move their trial to another county and are asking for charges to be dismissed. A status conference is set for April 7th. We had a discussion uh, outside of the presence of the recording here. It was reported by the court reporter, and I'll note, due to the nature of the discussion, the reporting of that discussion will be sealed, but uh, we did take a record of our discussions. After discussions with both counsel and in consideration of uh, what's been presented to the court, the court does find good cause at this time to vacate the currently scheduled hearings. Here to dive into the latest episode of the Doomsday Cult Couple Saga is criminal defense attorney Julie Rendleman and co-host Terry Austin. Terry, 
what do you think could have happened in this secret meeting? It seemed like a lot happened, but we don't know. Yeah, and the fact that he vacated the whole thing and there wasn't any discussion about anything that was decided, you know, we were expecting the prosecution to ask Judge Boyce to exclude that survey that we talked about that was commissioned by the defense, you know, in connection with the change of venue. But there was no decision made as far as that was concerned. And I think they were talking about using her married name. And maybe there was an agreement between all of them that they would, in fact, use her married name. It's very strange they're making such a big deal about this whole issue. But apparently, it's very important to Lori to be known that she's married to Chad David. Now, Julie, let's talk about that. I keep thinking that these cases will be separated, but wanting to be called by your married name when your husband is also accused of a, of a, of a serious crime, how, does that make Am I reading into that? What's that make, does that make sense to you? No, I, I, I think that there is a deliberate attempt on her part. I think it's a bad move. As far as I'm concerned, I don't think they're ever going to be separated. I think they're going to end up being tried together. And the worst thing that, as far as I'm concerned, Lori can do is show allegiance to the man next to her who's on trial where the bodies of her two children were found on his property. So to me, I think it's just another brainwashing, cult-like behavior on her part that she wants to let everyone know she is loyal to Chad Daybell. She doesn't want anything to do with Vallo, um, and that she's sticking with him to the end, and that's not a good move as far as I'm concerned. I would agree. It's going to be very peculiar when they have to explain that at trial, but we'll be there to see how it all boils down. Thank you. When we come back, Derek Chauvin's criminal trial is ongoing, but where does a civil case filed by George Floyd's family stand? The legal news you need to know after the break. a civil case filed by George Floyd's family is still outstanding. The estate of George Floyd filed a federal civil rights lawsuit against the city of Minneapolis and the four ex-cops charged in his death. The lawsuit was filed last summer, and since then, not much else has been known. But comments by Chauvin's attorney in court during his trial are providing insight. Eric Nelson referred to Rule 68, also known as an offer of judgment, suggesting the city might want to settle. With respect to the civil lawsuit, certainly the, at the, I think the court is aware, um, Mr. Floyd's family has filed a civil lawsuit. The city has made a Rule 68, a substantial Rule 68 offer. And the, the city acted in an effort to immediately, within hours, to attempt to limit its liability and distance themselves from this incident, whether it be for politics or whether it be simply to potentially mitigate financial exposure to the city, that is the very nature of bias. George Floyd's youngest sister was in court on behalf of the family and spoke about what her brother was like. The opposite to a great man, a great father, a great brother, a great uncle, and a great father. He really took a great father. He was so he loved his family. He loved his daughter. Gianna meant the world to him. And we would never get that back. Back one last time is Julie Rendleman and Terry Austin. Julie, how could an acquittal or conviction in the criminal phase 
criminal case are affect the civil case. Well, I mean, there's nothing better in a civil arena to be able to say that the defendant, meaning the police officer in this case, Derek Chauvin, and the three other officers were convicted. So keep in mind the standard is higher. It's beyond a reasonable doubt, whereas in a civil aspect, it's a preponderance of the evidence. So if you're able to prove it in a criminal case, you sure as heck can prove it in a civil case. So it makes it that much easier. An acquittal does not rule out civil possibilities, again, because the standard is lower. But of course, there's going to be more concerns if any of the defendants are acquitted, because it does make it a bit tougher in the civil arena. Makes sense. Now, Terry, the lawsuit is against the city and the four former officers. Do you think the city is kind of waiting to see how these trials go before deciding if they want to settle or go to trial? No, actually, here's what I think. I think the city is really trying to get in and to get out. They know that there might be an adverse decision as far as Chauvin is concerned. So I think they did the Rule 68 offer because they want to force a settlement by the plaintiff. And if, in fact, it's not accepted, then the plaintiff is going to have to cover all the costs. So I think it's a very strategic move. I think it's a smart move, actually. And we'll see what happens. But I think the city is expecting really an adverse decision, and they want to resolve everything they possibly can as quickly as they possibly can. And they're not going to wait for the criminal trial if they can avoid waiting for it. And probably like Defense Attorney Eric Nelson said, they want to separate themselves from the defendants, being the four ex-officers, as quickly as possible. Makes total sense. We'll see how that plays out. Julie, Terry, thank you. And thank you for joining us here on Law & Crime Daily. We'll see you next time as we discuss justice in America. Thank you.